0: If we'd please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 37. If you use the Pew Bible, it's found on pages 596 through 598. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. So the context is the same as what we looked at last week. The Assyrian army has conquered all the nations in the area of Jerusalem. They have taken all the fortified cities in Judah. And there's nothing now between them and capturing Jerusalem. So humanly speaking, this is a done deal. And this is a similar situation that we looked at when we studied chapter 7, which took place about 30 years prior to the events in these chapters. In chapter 7, King Ahaz was surrounded not by the Assyrians, but by a coalition of the northern kingdom of Israel and the pagan nation of Syria. When the Lord had promised King Ahaz through his prophet Isaiah, that this attack would not succeed. Not to worry, the Lord would defend his city. But Ahaz refused to trust the Lord. And instead, he turned to the the pagan Assyrian empire for protection. And Ahaz's unfaithfulness, 30 years prior, set up the crisis, which we now read, of the Assyrian empire, just about to annihilate God's people. And the question is, will history repeat itself? Will Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, will he follow in the unfaithfulness of his father. Will Hezekiah trust the Lord, or will he abandon the Lord and look to the things that are seen for his help? Last week in chapter 36, we saw a taunt from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and his general, the Rabshakeh. And last week we saw the enemy, really the enemy trash talk, attempting to get God's people to abandon God, to deny their Lord and surrender to the enemy. Well, today we see Hezekiah's reaction. We see if he will stand in faith or if he will fold like Ahaz did. So Isaiah chapter 37, you're now the word of the Lord. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that is the enemy's taunts, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rapshaka returned, And found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Goshen, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telesar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina? the king of Iva. And Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see... And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their god gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the nations of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank water to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago. I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, tr- blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down. And you're going out, and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that, then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishraq, his god, Adram-Melech and Shazazar, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped to the land of Ararat, Eshadon his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are true events that happened to your people. And Father, I pray that you will now speak to us through this word. Father, I pray that you will anoint my words. It will be your words. Father, I pray that you will open our ears to hear the message that you have for us today. This is not just a history lesson. This is your living word, the living word of the living God. And it is a message to your people today. And I pray, Father, we will hear the message and we will heed the message. Lord, I pray that we will see you. And Father, I pray that as we have this encounter with you, each one of us will be changed. Changed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's his name, and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine this situation. Imagine the situation that Hezekiah is facing at at the beginning of this chapter. His city is surrounded by a ruthless enemy. An enemy that has conquered all the nations around him. An enemy not even slowed down by his fortified cities. And he has just heard a report. He just heard a report of of taunts of the enemy. The enemy's trash talk. This is the psychological warfare that we looked at last week. And he's heard the the brutal description of, of what is awaiting the citizens of a city. What is awaiting himself? What is awaiting his officials? And it's basically certain death, certain annihilation. But it's not annihilation that's going to come quick. It will be painful. It will be slow. It will be torturous. It will be terrifying. It will be humiliating. And in the taunts of the enemy, though, there's a carrot that's held out. A possible way of escape from this horrible fate. And while it it, it may provide a means of escape from the anticipated physical horrors, this carrot comes at a cost, a huge cost, a huge spiritual cost. Because this carrot is basically simply for them to surrender to the Assyrians. This carrot is simply for them to give up and be exiled out of the land, a land that is given to them by God. And this option basically involves them giving up their identity as God's people, giving up their distinctiveness as God's covenant people. This option is for them to become like everyone else, to assimilate into the Assyrian Empire. And you see, this is the goal. This is the goal of the real enemy, the enemy of God's people. It's to get his people to abandon their faith, to get them to abandon their trust in God himself. And this is a temptation that's facing King Hezekiah. It's a choice, basically death, certain death, or deny God. Give up God. My friends, this is Satan's strategy. This is his strategy for every Christian. There is no hiding if you're a Christian. Satan's goal is either to destroy us or to have us abandon the Lord. Now, thankfully, the Lord is sovereign, not Satan. The Lord does restrain Satan. Satan cannot touch a a hair on our head without the Lord's permission. And thankfully, few of us will face this same choice, facing Hezekiah, death, or abandon God. But some do. Some will. Throughout history, even today, there have been martyrs who have been given this choice. Deny God or lose your life. And while few of us will face actual martyrdom, each one of us, every single Christian, will be tempted. We'll be tempted either due to social pressure or desire for comfort or some type of gain, some type of privilege. We will be tempted to abandon the Lord. And this is a choice facing King Hezekiah. Now, unlike his father Ahaz, who lived by sight, Hezekiah is a man of faith. Hezekiah lives by faith. We see Hezekiah's reaction from the very first verse. Verse 1 says, As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Do you know where Ahaz's first reaction was to reject the Lord and to look for his help from man. Hezekiah looks to God. See, tearing his clothes here and covering himself with sackcloth, these were signs of mourning. These were signs of repentance before the Lord. And Hezekiah doesn't go to his generals. He doesn't look to plan a physical defense. The first thing he does is he goes to the house of the Lord. His first instinct is to go to the Lord. Well, here's the question. Is this our first response? Is this our first impulse in a crisis? Do we go to the Lord? When we hear that that diagnosis, when we hear the the C word, the cancer, is that our first impulse to go to the Lord? Do we take the problem to the Lord first? Or do we first attempt to solve it ourselves? Do we say, I, I can figure, I've got this, I can do this. Or do we look to other people to help us? They can help us. Now I'll admit, I'll admit that that's not my first reaction. I'll admit that I often say I can do this my first myself before I look to the Lord. And I suspect the same is true for most, if not all of us here. And not only is Hezekiah's first response to go to the Lord, he is also surrounded by men who also have this same response. The king's three officials, Eliakim, Shebna, Joah, they tear their clothes. They went. With Hezekiah to the house of the Lord. They're joined by the senior priests who also are covered in sackcloth. The king here is surrounded by godly men who instinctively go first to the Lord in time of crisis. Again, what about us? What about us? Do we surround ourselves with people like this? Do we have family? Do we have friends? Do we have co workers who, in time of crisis, instinctively go to the Lord? Friends like this are rare. You've heard me speak many times about my friend from seminary, Nathan Francis, a.k.a. Skinny Nathan. Nathan has the best prayer reflex out of anyone I know. His first response to something, uh, a problem is to pray. And there are frequently times I will get a text from, from Nathan during the week, pray for me, or you got five minutes, can we get on the phone and can we pray together? These are the types of friends we need to have around us. They challenge us, they encourage us to improve our prayer reflex. So as the king and his top advisors and senior priests, they're they're repenting and praying in the house of the Lord. Who is the first person the king summons? Does he call his military leaders? Does he call his political advisors to talk about the situation? Does he call his ambassadors to try to negotiate some type of deal with the Assyrians? No, he calls one man. He calls God's prophet. He calls Isaiah. Now, as Hezekiah is clearly showing he's a man of faith, it's easy for us to get the wrong idea here. It's easy for us to think that he is calm, he is cool, he's completely confident that God is going to rescue him. He's not showing any anxiety, not showing any panic at all. This is clearly not the case, as we can see in his message that he sends to Isaiah in verse 3. He says, this is a day of distress. This is a day of rebuke. This is a day of disgrace. And he compares it to a woman who is at the point of giving birth and has no strength to deliver the baby. Now, those of you here who are mothers, those of you who have, who have given birth, those of you who have seen a woman give birth, I know when, when, uh, when Lynn was having, have, in, in labor in, in that intense time, it's an all-consuming activity. You know, I, I didn't talk to Lynn. Like, what about our vacation plans when she's, in, when she's in labor? And I say, do you, you think maybe we want to paint the garage or something like that? No, the, the, the hospital could be on fire. She didn't care. The only concern she is get this baby out. And this is the type of crisis that Hezekiah is. It's an all-consuming crisis. But Hezekiah's true concern is is different than what we would expect. See, we would think his primary concern, like my primary concern, the distress that I would have be caused by the fact that my city is about to be destroyed, that I'm about to be killed, my people are about to be brutally tortured and killed. That would be what, what I would be concerned. That would be my primary focus and motivation. But this is not what we see in Hezekiah. For Hezekiah, he's distressed about something that is infinitely more horrible than his own death, or even the death of his citizens of Jerusalem. Hezekiah, like, like a true man of God, ultimately has only one thing that he cannot accept. Only one thing that boils his blood, and that is that God is dishonored. That his God is being mocked. And this is the one thing he cannot accept. In verse 4, Hezekiah's outrage is that the king of Assyria has mocked the living God Hezekiah's message to Isaiah is basically a plea. He said, you got to do something about this. Do you hear what he's done? You've got to, God has got to action. God has got to avenge himself against this unbearable blasphemy. Now how about us? Is our biggest concern God's glory? I mean, think about it. Think about the things that concern you most. Think about the things that really upset you the most. Is it God being mocked? Is that what boils your blood? Or as I suspect, like myself, is our biggest concern our own glory? Are we most offended when we are insulted, rather than when God is insulted? And sadly, sadly, we are often too cowardly to react to the most profane blasphemies against our Lord and Savior. But immediately, immediately we'll get bent out of shape by just the littlest offense to our pride. And I am preaching to myself here, as I suspect I'm preaching to many of you as well. There's a verse that every Christian should have committed to memory. I've mentioned this many times. It's John 3.30. Anyone know what John 3.30 is? I'll give you a hint. It was spoken by John the Baptist. And it's, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Every Christian should have that. That should be our attitude. Christ increases, we decrease. So when people insult us, it's fine. Actually, if if they really knew us, we're probably a lot worse than they suspect. We're probably a lot worse than the insults. We must decrease. So we can be quiet. We can overlook. We can ignore offenses against us. This is actually noble. This is honorable. This is what we should do. But my friends, we cannot overlook offenses against Christ. We cannot condone, we cannot tolerate blasphemies against our God. This is the attitude of the man of God. And this is what we see in Hezekiah. See, God responds to the faith of his servant and the king. Through the words of prophet, God tells Hezekiah in verses 6 and 7 what he's going to do. He says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put my spirit to him, so that he shall bear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the Lord is telling Hezekiah, i got this under control. He says, you can trust me, I will avenge my holy name. In verse 8, we see that the scene shifts to the Assyrians, to what's going on with Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. And in verse nine, verse nine appears to be a fulfillment of Isaiah's words to Hezekiah, where Sennacherib he hears this rumor about a king, the king of Cush, coming against him. So we think that he's going to go, he's going to leave. It's going to to be fulfillment in the prophecy. But there's a problem. Sennacherib doesn't appear to take the bait. He doesn't leave Jerusalem. He doesn't head back to Assyria as as Isaiah's prophecy seems to imply. So the question: Was the prophecy wrong? Did God make a mistake? Obviously not. God's prophecy will be fulfilled. As we look at the end of the chapter, it is fulfilled in a, in a so much more spectacular way than we would initially suspect. However, put yourself in Hezekiah's place now. I'm sure he expected to hear that Sennacherib and the Assyrian army were on their way back to Assyria in response to this rumor. He, he thought that's the way the prophecy would have been fulfilled. But that's not what he hears. What does he hear? Instead of going back to Assyria, Sennacherib sends this message to Hezekiah. And we see the message in verses uh, 10 through 13. So what is the message? Is the message, I got to go back, take care of this problem from Cush? No. It's more taunts. It's more trash talk. It's more blasphemy against God. He continues to think that Yahweh is nothing more than one of these pagan gods that he's already defeated. And this is not what Hezekiah expected. In fact, I'm sure... uh, his hope, Hezekiah's hope and, and excitement are, are dashed at this point when he hears this. He may have even be thinking that Isaiah was wrong. Maybe he's thinking that God had failed him. I My mean, friends, have you ever been in this situation? Have you ever been in a difficult crisis that you're facing? And you're faithful. You are, you are looking to God. You are praying. You have friends who are praying. And it looks like you, you see a ray of hope. It looks like God, God is providing a way out. And you see that ray of hope and, and, and you say, oh, God's going to work this out. And, and you start praising him. You get all excited. But then, then nothing. The way that seemed so clear, the way that seemed like God was answering a prayer, it does not come to pass. And it, it, it's, it's, it's so close. You, you got it right there. Your hopes are so high. And then they all come crashing down. And have you ever had this happen to you? I know I've had this happen to me. And in any situation, you say, God, what is going on? What are you doing? If you're honest, it's really easy to get discouraged at this point. It's easy to, to question this whole faith thing. you think, did I miss the boat? Did I get something wrong? Am I just being deceived? Is God real? Is Christianity real? So is this what God is doing here? Is God just messing with us? Is God just messing with him? No, we've, we've read the whole chapter. We know the story. We know God has something just so much more amazing in plan. In, story. in fact, I, I'm sure it's something that Hezekiah would not even have considered. If God told him what he was planning to do, Hezekiah wouldn't have seen it. See, Hezekiah can see that God would send this rumor and get the Assyrians just to return and kind of give, buy him some time. But I don't think he would, in a million years, ever consider what actually God does. And I think the reason God does is why God shows us a path that ultimately he doesn't go down, I think he does it for two reasons. And one is I think it gives us hope in the moment gives us hope in the moment. And the other is, really, it builds our faith. It, tr- it tests our faith in light of the discouragement when the anticipated plan doesn't pay out. Let me give you an illustration from my, my own life. Back in 1999, when we were living in New Jersey, I had just lost my job. I was out of work. But that, that was okay because we were planning to move to Virginia for Lynn to go to vet school. And this actually gave me time. If I got severance, I got time to look for a job. And we were planning to move Virginia, and, and early on, I had interviewed with this position that seemed perfect for me. It was with Whitfield Community College. It was basically a, a manufacturing consultant. And this this was exactly what I was qualified. I would use my my uh, engineering education and my experience. And I remember I interviewed with them twice, and, and and not to be arrogant, I, I nailed the interviews. There was no doubt. They were they were clearly impressed. But as most of you know, when you go in through a hiring process, this takes a while. They have to interview many candidates. They have to get approvals. So this process took about two months. But things looked good. And during, the time, during that two months, I sent other applicants. I actually had other interviews. But none of them went as well as us. This. this was always my best option. And when I went to bed at night, I don't know if any of you have been unemployed. You go to bed at night. That's when those fears come in. And you start. I'm never going to get a job again. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. We're going we're, we're to lose our house. All of these fears were coming in. But that was the one thing I held on to. I said, I I know I'm going to get that job. It might not be the perfect job, but I'm going to get that job. And it it wasn't the perfect job. It was about 60 miles from the vet school. It involved a a lot of driving around, so I wouldn't have been around to help take care of the kids. Uh, It would would have been a difficult job, but it was something that I was qualified for, and it was a job to get us down there. Now, after waiting for several weeks, I, I get a call from the director of the position and he said, Well, we are really impressed with you, but we had an internal candidate and we decided to go with him. And 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 you know, we want you to apply for this other job, but it's all back to, to ground zero. It's another couple of months waiting. And 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 I was devastated, I was discouraged, because that was really the only thing I had. At this point, I have now I've been a couple of months unemployed and no options, and you know, running out of unemployment and 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 terrified. Then out of a blue one Friday night. We just returned from a, from a rather fruitless trip to, to, of interviews in Virginia. I get home. I remember I, Lynn's still at work, and I'm, I'm feeding the kids. I'm making them pancakes for dinner. About 7 o'clock at night, I get a call from Joe Kelly, the, the manager of computer purchasing at Virginia Tech. And he asked me about a computer position that I applied for. And I applied for about 50 positions. I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm going through my computer programming position, what it was. And this was a job that I was not qualified for. I was just, I was just throwing out resumes. And I'm kind of playing along, trying to hear enough so I understand what he's talking about. And he, he kind of sounded informal, but he said, you know, the next time you're in the area, if you want to come, come in, you know, I'd like to talk to you. <clears throat> well, I had just been down there, so I said, all right, I'll be there Monday. You know, It's, a, it's not next door. It was a six-hour drive, but I, I went down there. But I really felt like I was going through the motions. I didn't, I didn't think I had any chance to get the job. Well, I met with Joe on Monday, and I was unusually nervous for this interview. Usually I do well at interviews, but this one I felt like I was stumbling. I, I didn't really understand what to say. I, I just completely thought I'd I blow it. But you know what? He hires me on the spot. He, hires, he says, we're interested. But you, but, and, and this was a state position, and, and I don't know if you're familiar. They basically have a salary range. And most people, when you start, you start at the bottom. But the bottom salary was really too low for us to support the family and, and for me to come down there. So Joe asked me, he said, I, I understand. He said, how much do you need? How much do you need to make this job work? I said, okay, I went through and I I gave him an accurate number, but it was a number completely, you know, way higher than what the starting salary was, much more close to the top of the salary. I give it to him. I didn't really expect anything. Again, it's a job I'm not qualified. Guess what? He said, we can do it. He gets me the job. He gets me right what I needed. But that's not all. Joe was actually able to get Virginia Tech to pay for my relocation and three months housing. This was unheard of. I, I didn't realize. You know, if you, I, was in, I was in the corporate world, and that wasn't really un, uncommon. But in, in a state job, again, uh, this was, I, I knew professors that didn't get this, this type of a deal. This is something that they only gave to, to deans. But, but again, it was perfect because you know, I had been unemployed. We, we didn't have much savings. We wouldn't have been able to afford that. So God provided that. And Joe was a Christian. He, he was an elder pastor in his non-denominational church. And, and it not only was a good job professionally, but it was also a good job spiritually. I grew in my faith working for Joe. And it was the perfect job. It was on campus. It was about a mile away from the vet school where Lynn was working. I had a lot of flexibility. I could help take care of the kids. We lived two miles away from, from where I was working. <laughs> This is probably the best job that I had, but I would never have believed it. I would have never thought that God was planning something this perfect. So he gave me this community college job just to hold me along while he had something so much better prepared for me while I was waiting. So I think this is one of the reasons why God shows us a, a plausible path that he ultimately doesn't go down. Because I think we would we would not be, we'd be just completely amazed at what he was planned. But there's also another reason here. The other reason is, when things don't go as expected, things don't pan out, this is an opportunity to test our faith. Do we truly believe God? Do we truly trust him and to strengthen his faith and know that, that he will provide? Are we still going to believe in God? Are we still going to trust God? And I think this is what we see in Hezekiah. See, how does Hezekiah react when he gets this letter? Does he freak out like, like I did when I got that call from Withfield Community College and I knew that I didn't get it? Does he, does he start then scheming and planning and <clears throat> like Ahaz did? Now, verse 14 tells us, He goes back to the Lord. He takes the letter and he spreads it out before the Lord. And then he prays. And and what faith. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at this prayer. This prayer that he has in verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, Hezekiah prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So Hezekiah starts this prayer simply reminding himself of who he is praying to. Who his God is. He says, you are enthroned above the cherubim. You are bigger. You're bigger than Assyria. You're bigger than Judah. You're bigger than this whole planet. You are the God of all. You are the creator. Hezekiah reminds himself who his God is. He continues in verse 7. He says, incline your ear, O Lord. And hear, open your eyes, O Lord. And see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. See, again, we see Hezekiah's motivation for his prayer. It's defending God's honor. He is concerned more with God, not with himself primarily. He wants to see God act because God has been dishonored. This is the justification for his plea. He continues, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. And you can hear the bold defiance here in Hezekiah's words. He said, those gods are nothing. They're not like you. They can't save. And finally, then Hezekiah makes his request in verse 20. You see his petition. So now, O Lord our God, save us from this His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So what's the reason for his petition? Is it to save our skins because we're in trouble? Well, I'm sure it's on his mind. But that's not the most important. The most important reason is so that all the nations of the earth know that Yahweh alone is God, and he is the living God, and he answers the prayer. See, God's glory is the ultimate motivation of the prayer. So what about our prayers? Do our prayers look like this? Are they they bold and desperate prayers? As I was studying this passage last week, I was challenged by this, and I realized that my prayers prayers are, are way too selfish. They're way too weak. They're way too feeble. I pray for things that glorify me rather than things that glorify God. And this short little prayer, I think, is a good bottle for our prayers. It starts with contemplating God. See, we must first know him. We must first know who we are praying to. We must confess him. Start by praising him. And we do this not because he needs our praise. It's not not vain flattery. God doesn't desire this. See, this opening is for us. It reorients us. It reorients our thinking toward God. It helps us see him for who he is, to see who we are praying to. And when we do this, when we do this, we are naturally filled with confidence. Thinking about God, uh, praying his attributes, this strengthens our faith. It increases our love for him. It, can, it conforms our thinking to his thinking. And when we do this, it will change. It change the whole tenor of our prayers. And this will be, our prayers will be more God-centered. They'll be less us-focused. To be less selfish, we will naturally desire his glory above all else. We will will naturally decrease. He will naturally increase. And we will joyfully become nothing so that he can become everything. And this will naturally shape our petitions. We'll no longer pray solely for the things that bring us glory or bring us comfort or bring us gain. We'll pray grand, God-glorifying prayers. Prayers for his name to be known known to all the nations, that his kingdoms will expand throughout the earth. And my friends, these prayers will be heard. These prayers will be answered. They will be answered really in ways that we can't even imagine, ways that will blow our mind. And look at the immediate result of this type of prayer. Look at verse 21. What is the result of Hezekiah's prayer? The Lord responds. The Lord communicates to Hezekiah through Isaiah. The, the, the Lord's response here is seen in verses 22 to 29. And in response, basically what we see is a taunt. Last chapter was a taunt by, by uh, the Assyrians. Here we see a taunt by God against the king of Assyrian. The Lord is directly and immediately answering Hezekiah's prayers. And these verses, they give us the answer. See, the Lord is going to act. The Lord is going to set things right. And everything we know... What, and everyone will know what has happened. And it's clear that Sennacherib here is defying the living God. And he's reaping the consequences of such a foolish and blasphemous actions. Look at verse 23. These are the Lord's words to the king of Syria. He says, whom have you mocked? Whom have you reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? And he gives him the answer, against the Holy One of Israel. This is who you have mocked. And in verses 24 and 25, then the Lord turns it around, and he mocks Sennacherib. He he, he mocks the boast about his own power. And in verse 26, the Lord removes the veil. He shows that it was the Lord who has determined Assyria's success. It was according to his plan. See, the Lord just used Assyria as an instrument of his judgment. God had given them the power. The power wasn't from them, it was from God, who allowed them to do what they ordained. Now they did what they wanted to do. They wanted to rebel against God. The evil was their own fault. God did not force them to do it. But God enabled them to do what they wanted to do. God was in control all along. And then verses 28 and 29, the Lord pronounces judgment on Sennacherib in Assyria. He says, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you've come. And we need to remember that these words, although they're spoken about Sennacherib, they were not given to Sennacherib, or at least not here. maybe there was another prophet that came to Sennacherib, but these words are given to Hezekiah and they are given for a purpose. and the purpose is to encourage Hezekiah. See immediately after his prayers, Hezekiah is given light. He now knows what God is doing. He is filled with confidence. God will respond. The revelation is, is a great comfort for Hezekiah. So you remember, physically nothing has changed. Physically, Jerusalem is still surrounded by at least 185,000 enemy troops ready to sack it. Nothing has changed. But everything has changed. And because of this prayer, Hezekiah has changed. He has gone from being terrified, though faithful, to being confident and being joyful. Hezekiah now understands God. He now confidently trusts God for deliverance. And this is what God does. This is what prayer does. See, he still doesn't know how. He doesn't know how just how God's going to do it, but he knows God promises and he knows that it will happen. He can trust it. And this makes all the difference. St. Augustine was then asked, he said, why should we pray? God already knows what he's going to do. Why do we pray? Our prayers are not going to change his mind. And Augustine responds prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Prayer prepares us to receive what God has already planned. That's why we pray. It gets us in alignment with God. God is not changing God. Now, God uses our prayers as one of the means to accomplish His will, but we don't change God's mind. Prayer changes us. And I think this is what we see in Hezekiah in response to His prayer. God is changing Hezekiah, God gives Hezekiah his own divine perspective. Hezekiah is, is prepared for what God is about to do even though he doesn't know exactly what that is. And this is what God does to us when we pray. In accordance with his will, this is what God does. When we pray, the Holy Spirit will bring us peace. He increases our faith. He increases our trust in God. We may not know exactly how God is going to accomplish his plans, but we know that those plans are good. We know that God is in control. We know that he will work out the situation for our good and for his glory. In verses 33 to 35, God makes it clear to Hezekiah that Assyria will not harm Jerusalem. He says they will not come into the city or shoot an arrow at it or set up a siege mount against it. The Lord declares in verse 35, I will defend this city to save for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then in verses 36 to 38, we see the plan unfold. Then we see what God actually did. And this is a spectacular. This is something completely unexpected. It's supernatural, and it makes it clear that Yahweh is God. He is not just one of individual gods. He is the God, and God alone gets the glory. See, there's no way Hezekiah could take credit for this. No way the people of Judah can take credit for it. It is all done by the Lord, and what did the Lord do? God sent an angel that struck down the Assyrian army, instantly killing 185,000, instantly. Just think about that. Let that sink in, 185,000. Immediately taken away. Now, we don't know if this is the only, uh, with, with, with all of them or a portion, but either way, Sennacherib sees this, he realizes this is a fight that he doesn't want, and he runs home. He goes home. And then when he's home, we see Sennacherib is assassinated by his own sons in his temple, as prophesied by Isaiah. So, what does it take away? What does all this mean for us? Again, this is a nice story that happened all these years ago. What does it mean for us? Why well, don't look again at verse 35? The Lord says, I will defend this city. To say, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And this is the reason Hezekiah could have confidence that his prayer was heard. It's not because of the zeal of his prayers, it's not because of the faith that he had, it's not really because of anything in Hezekiah. It was heard because of God's own sake and for the sake of his servant David. Now, for the Christian, our confidence is even greater. See, so our confidence that God hears our prayer is also for his own sake, but not for, for David's sake. It is for the sake of David's greater son. It is for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Christian who is united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, we have an even greater confidence than Hezekiah had. Our confidence is based not on gracious promises given to a sinful and fallen man, King David. Our confidence is based on the merits of the sinless Son of God Himself. So now you're not a Christian. If you're here and you or you hear my voice on the on the live stream and you're not united to Christ by faith, this chapter does not belong to you. Does not apply to you other than really the the judgment that we see on the 185,000 or on Sennacherib. So you can't pray according to God's will because you don't know God. God will not answer your prayers because they're not prayed in accordance with his will. They're not prayed through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way we can access God. It is through Christ. We don't have natural access to God. Naturally, we are his enemies. But even worse, even worse, if you do not belong to Christ, you're facing a far greater crisis than faced by Hezekiah. You're facing eternal destruction. And not at the hand of a wicked king, a wicked Assyrian, but at the hand of the infinite, almighty, all-powerful God himself. See, if you're not in Christ, God is your enemy. But my friends, that can change. That can change. Now is the time of grace. Judgment is coming. But now the door of salvation is open to all. You know, scripture says, call upon the Lord in faith. Receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he has offered it in the gospel. And this is a prayer that he will answer. The door of grace is open. The door of, of salvation is open. And for those who belong to the Lord, our application is simply to trust in God. We are to trust his word. We are to trust his promises, regardless of external circumstances. Things may look bad. We are to pray. Pray that God, pray according to his will. Pray that his name will be glorified, not for our, our, our own comforts our our own uh, pride pray that his name is glorified and when we do this God will answer these prayers we don't know how we don't know exactly what he's going to do but we know he will be prepared to be amazed he will answer them in ways that we would never have considered and they were all for his glory and not only will he answer these prayers but when we pray in accordance with his will and for his glory God will change us Our thinking will become aligned with his thinking. We will see things the way he sees things. My friends, this will give us joy. This will give us peace. There is no greater joy. There is no greater peace than this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for these words that we see here. Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you we can trust your word. And Father, I pray that you will give us that faith. That faith when things look difficult. Father, I don't know the situation that people are facing here, but Lord, when we are in difficult times, we look to you. We look to your grace. We trust you. We trust that you will be glorified. We trust that all things will work together for our good and for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name.